people forget them. I mean, hmm. the, the, the flood's over. You've moved on to the next season. And yet the hardship for these people it remains. And, and the, the tension and the, the anxiety that they have. I mean, it's just, it, we, we're so fortunate where we live and that we don't have to deal with that, but we have to face it and we have to confront it and help. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me on the program, a return guest this time in studio, the Senior Climatologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada, David Phillips. Thanks for being here. Well, David, nice to be with you and to come into studio. I think we've done this on the phone before, but hey, uh, nice to see where you work and and what a, what a beautiful uh, studio it is. Well, David, you continue to keep tabs on everything with weather and climate across this country and across the world. And uh, here we are over a quarter of the way through 2023. And uh, we got a bit of a break. 2021 was a heavy year. Oh. 2022, still there is the moments. And 2023, we're seeing some, some significant heat even, a bit of a, a little window into summer. What's your response to that? Well, I mean, everybody is interested about this year because we've seen the disappearance of La Nina. This is this cold water in the Pacific, okay. which has tempered, kept the uh, global temperatures down a little bit for the last three years. Now we're into El Nino, which is the warmer water. And there's the general feeling among scientists is, boy, this year, 2023, and likely more 2024, may be the warmest year on record. I mean, we've kept records for 150 years globally. Stick a thermometer in the planet. It's been saying we've been warming up. And we've certainly seen since 2015, uh, and, and the, the eight warmest years on record have been in that period. And so now with the El Nino, along with just the normal warmth of planet Earth, we could see a record this year. And we've already seen in some parts, Asia has never been warmer. Hmm. They've had the, the second warmest uh, spring on record in China. We've seen people, uh, temperatures in Hong Kong and in uh, Thailand have never been to what they are this year. We see people in India dying because of extraordinary heat. And here we are just coming out of the winter and spring. We've had our own test of it here. I just recall in April, my gosh, we had that the worst ice storm in 25 years in Ottawa, Montreal. A week later, we had temperatures we've never seen before hmm. in April. I mean, wonky and wild and wacky. I mean, it's almost, but it's, you know, it's a typical April. April, I always think is fickle and fitful. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that kind of month where, Summer wants to get a foothold and winter wants to hold on. And so you go from one extreme to the other. And I often think, you know, in your clothes closet, uh, you can really tell you what the weather is because you're getting some, you've got winter clothes next to summer clothes right on the first rack. But it is just wild weather. The weather taxes from every direction. You've got tropical air, you've got Arctic air, and mm. it's all duking it out in your backyard. And that's why it's sort of volatile and uh, and kind of a crazy uh, kind of month. Hard to forecast and sometimes hard to figure out, but doesn't matter how many Aprils you deal with, they all seem to have that same kind of character, which is, hey, if you don't, you know, expect the unexpected. Mm. Now, David, are you somebody who always gets it right in the morning, deciding uh, what you should wear if you're going to be right for the day just based on your work? <laughs> no, listen, uh, my wife would be the first to tell you he can, he might be a you know, a, a weather guy for 55 years, but he still can screw up with the weather from one day to the next. <laughs> you know, what kind of plants, you know, when is the frost going to end? And I'll say, well, so then she heads to the garden center and you get a, get a frost, you say. 
or, um, you know, she'll joke, well, you know, it's Friday at six o'clock. If we go out, my gosh, clearly going to rain no matter what I say. So, you know, it's still uh, one of the, you could put a person on the moon, but hey, trying to figure out what the weather's going to be from one day to the next is still one of science's biggest challenges. Mm. Well, here we are, 2023. You mentioned uh, likely going to set some records for the warmest. And do you see this trend continuing with El Nino going forward, 2024, 2025? Do you predict that far out? It's hard to predict. I mean, we can, we certainly, it's a very useful parameter or variable to know about because it gives us a good chance of how the seasons are going to unfold. We know how the weather can change from day to day, but it's how the oceans go so dictates what our months and seasons would be like. Uh, the oceans have more memory. You can't change them overnight like you can the weather. So when you get a sense of what the oceans are like, and if they're warm today, they're going to be warm tomorrow and next week and next month. But, you know, in the long term, it may weaken and the cold waters can come back. So it's not something you can forecast for, you know, a year or two years, but it gives you a good sense of the season ahead. And our models seem to suggest because all the indicators are there that El Nino is going to be strong. It's going to last certainly the summer and likely the winter. And that's when it has more of an effect on our winters in Canada and likely we'll go to next year. And that's why the, the scientists are suggesting we certainly will see this year as one that's going to be maybe one of the warmest. And if not this year, certainly next year, because the warmth of the oceans will be there. It'll be growing. The atmosphere will be warmer. And so therefore, it's likely to be warmer next year than it is this year. So we clearly know we're going to see something's going to happen with regards to a warmer world. And of course, David, that creates also wild weather. It makes droughts droughtier. It makes heat waves stronger. It makes even in some areas flooding floodier. And so it provides more extremes of weather. And that's really what is we've noticed about the weather in the last, say, 20 years. It's how many extremes that we're seeing. You know, young kids today, I'm told, are worry about, you know, mm-hmm. about, about climate change. They, they fret about it. They lose sleep. They lose appetite. And, of course, when you see the kind of extremes that they face now compared to what their parents and grandparents had to deal, two to seven times more extremes of weather because the world is warmer, and so that generates more wild weather. And so so I think it's all, all kind of fits. And so I'm, my sense is the headlines will be big and broad and bold this year and next about more weird and extreme weather, not only in Canada, but also around the world. Mm. Do you think that the feelings that young people are having, anxious, sad, afraid, a uh, study from some of our listeners, over half of them that between the ages of 16 to 25 reported feeling this way. Do you think they're warranted? That's a tough one. I, I know that kids are clearly uncertain about what's happening. And it affects their health. They're not eating. They're not sleeping. They have wake up with nightmares. They're seeing these things occurring in the other side of the world. I mean, it used to be in, when, when I was a young kid, well, you never knew what happened in Bangladesh or Botswana or Bolivia, just in Burlington or maybe Burnaby. But but now the world is so much smaller. And so they're seeing these. They're seeing the perils, the the death and destruction, the creative power of these of the weather. And so they worry about that as as kids. And and they're asking questions and the questions aren't there. And they're seeing people that maybe are ignoring to do something about it. So so my sense is that this eco anxiety, as people have called it, have, has, has really caused uh, parents uh, concern. They're, they're going to 
they're, they're physicians asking questions. They're, the kids are just, their behavior is different and, and they're not, they've withdrawn and depressed at times. And, and sometimes it's just based on what they're seeing in terms of the, the fallout from, from extremes of weather. Now, hey, when parents ask me, I'll say, you know, it's youth. It's, it's what people think about and do. You're, you're not alone in that. But I said, how to deal with it is deal with action. You know, eco-anxiety means also you can overcome it by, by, you know, action in terms of getting involved, learning a little bit more about it, uh, talking about it in school and, and friends and relatives and, and encourage them to read about it and things like this. And so kind of, of destroy the myth of it and the uncertainty of it by, by facts. And if they learn to do a few things and they will get excited and they feel that they are making a contribution to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the... Connection to uh, the web making this information so instantaneous. This doesn't necessarily help with the problem that's so glaring. Uh, But when it comes to even where people are living, I mean, you know this country so well. Would there be, honestly, places that you would, if you had someone in your family that was going to move to this coast or to this place, Interior Canada, you might say, hey, you may want to (laughs) consider elsewhere just because I know that this place gets hit hard. Yeah, that is a really good question. And you frame it so well. I've often asked people say, well, where is the best weather in Canada? You know, and I'll say, <laughs> well, I, I don't, we always have our cross to bear with regards to the weather. But I think that, and that's the thing about climate change. In a way, it's fair because it treats everybody kind of the same. Mm. There's no safe haven from, from extremes of, of weather. Now, I have my preference. I mean, I prefer as an older person, I don't prefer the cold as much as I used to and, and that. But I think it, it affects everybody. And, and I think there's no, as I say, there's no place that I think is, is going to be safer. Uh, everyone's going to be affected by it. And perhaps in the Arctic, we have seen incredible changes because, David, here, we can go a whole day or two without thinking of climate change in terms of how it's affecting us. But you can't in the Arctic. You can't escape it. Mm. It's changing the geography of the Arctic. Their permafrost is melting. The ice is disappearing. Mm. The snow cover is things. So when people go out, the Inuit and Dene people go out to fish and hunt and and travel great distances, uh, their life's at risk. We're seeing more search and rescues in the north because the elders can't read the ice as much as they could. And so there are some areas that are more vulnerable to the weather. And there are people, some peoples, are more vulnerable. I think, for example, um, uh, refugees and the poor and the unemployed and the elderly uh, have more, you know, more hardships and not able to to deal with the kind of changes that they're they're seeing. Um, I, I think people and you know, it seems a little unfair in a way, David. Some of these people didn't really cause it, but they're the victims of it. And I think that should bother everybody. You know, I mean, who's contributing most to it? Well, it's rich countries, not poor countries, but everybody's affected by it. But yet rich countries can can recover. I mean, they've got good uh, rescue and recovery plans, emergency measures, a health system. So you often see that, hey, it beats us up. It beats up that neighborhood. But my gosh, within, you know, a, a year or two, they're back onto their feet. And you'd almost think, well... Maybe it didn't occur, you know. I mean, trees are down, and that can be a, a, a lasting kind of, of of memory of it. But my sense is it just seems to be a little unfair from that point of view. It, it just seems to be there are people who are more at risk than others, and yet 
they didn't really cause it in the first place. Uh, I'm interested, you know, focusing on Canada, mm-hmm. uh, I've read that statistics indicate that places in our country are warming up twice as fast as the average of the rest of the world. What do you attribute that to? Well, you, you raise a good point. It's, a, it's clear evidence of that. Uh, in some parts of Canada, we're warming up two or three times faster than the global average and, and half the time. So we think, well, yeah, but we're a cold country. We're the second coldest country in the world. We're the snowiest country in the world. But it's exactly that cold in the snow that caused the effects of us to all of a sudden have runaway kind of, of warming. And principally, it's the snow and the ice boundaries. Because when you have a, a snow and ice, just give you an example mm-hmm. from the Arctic. When you have a white snow cover and that sun comes in, well, almost 90% of that sun's rays, the radiation, is reflected right back into space. Wow. It doesn't do any work for you. It doesn't melt the snow. It's not absorbed by the snow. It's immediately bounced and back up. And so when you have more white covers instead of forests or grasslands, which would absorb the solar radiation, so therefore in the Arctic, where we have thinner ice, we have more open water longer. And when you think about water, I mean, that absorbs 90%. It doesn't reflect 90%. So more of that heat of the radiation is absorbed. It warms it up and it changes the atmosphere, the environment above it, you say. So that's why when for us, why we're seeing these, these almost incredible differences than you would see in tropical countries or in more temperate climates or the United States. So that's why you see, if you really want to know which part of the world is warmer than any other, you'd go to you know Russia or the northern or real extreme southern part of the world. And certainly in Canada, the Arctic is probably the best example of the immediate changes we've seen in all aspects of their life because of the kind of advanced warming we've seen in the last 20 or 25 years. David, this is what's happening here in, in North America proper and in Canada, but the anxiety and the frustrations that we have with climate change, the better that we understand it, as you alluded, it's to these places in the world that don't have the economy of the States or Canada and, and they're left uh, displaced and uh, much, it's much harder for them to rebuild. What would be your counsel to young people uh, in terms of just trying to process the atrocities that happen in places like Africa? Yeah, you know, it's a very, it's, it's numbing to, to see the effects of climate change to, to other people in around the world. And you see a lot of times, David, what's, what sociologists are discovering is that because of climate change, it's leading to conflict strife um, mm-hmm. because people don't have food. Their, 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 their food uh, harvest is, is less. So therefore they, they cause rebellion or uprising and, and, and demand to be fed and things. Like that. And so it leads to all, all kinds of, of conflict between people. And it's just all triggered because of the, of the kind of changed climate that we have. And, and it's, it's, I feel sometimes at loss of, of what to do and, and how to cope with that. To, um, and, and, and it is just because it really is, is more of an impact. I mean, the, the same kind of wild weather may be occurring everywhere, but the impacts are very different to different peoples. And because some people have the, have the capacity to re- deal with that and, and recover, 
we're so fortunate because of our emergency measures uh, activities and and our professional staff and and the, the that we can handle that and get people back to normal living but then it's always the after effects is what well what do we learn from that and of course people in other parts of the world are uh, still suffer and they they lose their home and 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 you know even in, in this country i often think about the the aboriginal people in in um in southern manitoba who almost every year there's a flood and they have learned to live in hotels or motels mm. just month after month and year after year. And people forget them. I mean, mm. the, the, the flood's over. You've moved on to the next season. And yet the hardship for these people it remains and, and the, the tension and the, the anxiety that they have. I mean, it's just, it, we, we're so fortunate where we live and that we don't have to deal with that but we have to face it and we have to confront it and help. I mean, people like to help out and, and do things to, to help the misery and suffering that is going on elsewhere because of our doing, everybody's doing. I mean, it wasn't just a freak accident that occurred. It was something that was created in nature that was contributed by everybody. And so I think there's a, an ownership of that. And I think people need to get involved and help, help out in a you know in a very Christian kind of way, in a very uh, uh, volunteer kind of way, and and in a in a support kind of way financially, and not just say well those poor people over there and then go back on to normal living here. I think that it's I don't think we should lose sleep over it, but I think we should have a game plan. We should have in fact try to help out, and I think helping is something that I think is a very good Canadian way of doing things, and and I think we need to do more of that. And it's interesting, you know, you think about almost like a three-pronged attack with poverty, conflict, and climate change that all sort of wreak havoc in areas of the world. And sometimes the conflict is something that we're not able to necessarily broach with as much ease or to have as much of an impact per se. Uh, Poverty, we can perhaps a little bit more with our finances and with some of these trips and, and climate change, probably equally so. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, it's where do you put your effort? And yeah. and yet they all, as you so beautifully put it, they're all related. I mean, yeah. some some I you know some climatologists who say, well, the best thing we can do to counter the effects of climate change is, in fact, reduce poverty because it gives people the opportunity. And then how do you how do you say to people who um, you say, well? You know, you shouldn't have a refrigerator because it's going to cost, you know, fuel to drive that, you say. And so, yeah, and yet you're, you're driving and you've got the, the luxuries of life and how you can deny that. And people will often say, well, I'm not going to do anything globally from a climate change point of view until I see all countries involved. Well, that seems so unfair. And it's just a way of, of not doing anything. You know, it's an excuse that you kind of need to just say, well, I've, I've done my bit and until they do their bit, I'm not going to move on it. So my sense is that that is, a con- that is very much a concern to me. I mean, people want a taste of the good life, the easy life, the soft life. And, um, and so it's hard to deny that to them um, and by, by saying, well, cut back on your fossil fuels. Hmm. It's one of those things that it is hard to grapple visually but we need to it needs to come as really for impact and this is something that is so pertinent within uh the sphere of religion and in the christian faith if it's not a conviction if it's just an add-on 
then you're less likely to do it. But if you really feel it in your heart and you feel compelled, then you're far more likely to take action. Oh, and feel feel good about it, too. Yeah. That you just have a reward. My reward is how I feel about making a difference. Mm. And, and, and I think that because, you know, when it really comes down to it, I, I think it's the earth is does not belong to us. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think in many ways we're accountable for how we leave it and and for other generations and how we care for it. Um, and maybe, you know, it's the room I'm in and with you, I'm I'm inspired by that that scripture in James who said that, you know, and it, and it seems, it, it gives me hope too, in a way, um, that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, it's a sin. And so I think if people know hmm. what to do and the right thing to do, I interpret that that scripture as that. And I get... A lot of strength from that, because I think that, um, especially when you talked about the survey at the beginning of how uh, people of faith have really embraced this environmental issue, want to do something about it, not not turn a blind eye or or uh, put their head in the sand, but want to make a difference. I'm very much um, encouraged by that. And I think that if we are able to convince more people to that kind of attitude, we'll have a a safer and more comfortable world to live in. And you see the earth headed in a good direction there. I, I do. I, I think every every little bit helps. I mean, tomorrow I'll probably read something that discourages me greatly. But I want to keep thinking that, that we are headed in the right direction. You know, David, we know the problem. We know the solution. We just need to do something about it. We need, to, we need that political will, which... Hey, if the politicians aren't going to do anything about it, then stand aside and let good people carry the way and do something. But um, so my sense is that the science is not a mystery. We we know what's causing this. We know where what, what is the the trigger, and we know kind of what to do about it. And I think the other thing too is that whatever we can do about it will make the planet safer and more livable. And more mm-hmm. likable for people. So that I think not only will we solve the maybe the global change, the climate change uh, problem, but we'll also solve other problems at the same time. Mm. It's a hopeful note to end on. We've been in conversation for the second time with uh, the senior climatologist from Environment and Climate Change Canada, David Phillips. Thank you for this. Thank you, David, so much. So David described the earth as not ours. And I love how he put it that, you know, future generations will enjoy it. But I would go even one step further because as Christians, we get the perspective that the earth is God's. The psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and all who dwell in it. I don't know about you, but when I know I've been entrusted with something, whether it's a job or a person to care for, I usually will take that to heart when I can really see that this is something I need to take ownership of. And if you were to do a Bible study on earth, I believe that you would see that this is true of creation, that you have been entrusted with it. It's been entrusted for you to care and we're to steward it and take care of it. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. He's gone from football wide receiver to bobsleigh pilot. We'll be taking off with Orion Edwards. Don't miss the steep learning curve on the bobsleigh track and what it takes to get to the Olympics. Plus, the opportunities in sports to use the platform you have for Jesus. I had a really good conversation with my uncle, and um, I called him and I kind of disclosed to him, like, hey, you know, like, I might be cut from this team. And he was just like, you know what you need to do? I was like, what? He's like, you need to pray and ask God to 
not only bless your hands, but to bless your hands to the fullest and tell them that you're going to give them the glory. And I was like, and I, and I just started doing that. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus.